enter the world of Ho Lai, Reb Brown, and so many heroes named Steve. 80s Action Movies on the Cheap is filled with insightful reviews about the films made during the decade that gave us big hair, shoulder pads, and yuppies. This book is an excellent guide through the action movies that didn't quite make blockbuster status, or in some cases, any status at all. Written with wit, good humor, a definite fondness, and minimal spoilers, this book is a must-have for film lovers. 80s Action Movies on the Cheap by Daniel R. Budnick is available now at Amazon and McFarland Books. Hey everybody, it's Dan. Welcome to episode 78 of Eventually Super Train, the short-lived TV show podcast covering short-lived TV shows one episode at a time. Eventually we will get to Super Train. And in this episode, we are talking, well, I am talking with uh, three good friends of mine. We're starting off, Amy the Conqueror and myself are talking episode 17 of Erie, Indiana, getting near the end. Mitchell Hadley and myself are discussing episode 28 of Bourbon Street Beat. And the great Amanda Reyes, my podcast pal, and myself are talking episode 10 of Masquerade. I don't think I have anything else to say in the opening here. I, I, I thank you so much, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Let's leap right in. Let's go to eerie. Better weird than dead. Episode 17, Zombies and PJs, aired April 12th, 1992, directed by Bob Balaban, written by Julia Paul. In this one, uh, let's see, uh, Radford, who runs the, John Aston, who runs the World of Stuff, is about to go under. The, he hasn't paid taxes in ages, and uh, the uh, IRS are out to visit him. Uh, Marshall is showing up there because he bought a dis- he had his mother buy a disguise kit on credit that he doesn't have the money for, so he's going to try to return it. As he gets to the world of stuff, a gentleman played by Rene Arbogenois, and I'm not going to say what his name is. We'll mention that in the discussion plays a guy who's more or less the devil with the help of uh plus and minus no wait dash x the gray-haired kid what we call him dash x uh they basically take over get uh, the world of stuff get radford to sign some contracts and things and they put out all these very persuasive hypnotic commercials that basically bring out all the inhabitants of erie zombies and pjs in the middle of the night to buy all kinds of stuff they don't need on credit signing contracts that sells their souls oh boy and it's up to marshall and simon to save the day but what happens when these ads begin to invade their dreams mm, okay uh amy is waiting she doesn't like to be kept waiting so let us hop on over amy let's chat Zombies in PJs, Rene Arbogenois, alongside John Aston. That's a fun cast. Plus Dash X is back, or minus plus, whatever you want to call him. And I am here to talk uh, Zombies in PJs with my pal, Amy the Conqueror. Amy, 
I know that last time you were on, you mentioned you, you were having a problem with your knee or something. What, how, how are you? Eh, who cares? Let's move on. What did okay. you think of this episode, Dan? I, I, um, okay, um, I, all right, um, I, it's, it's interesting because I like the episode. It feels like a bit of a step back after the previous episode because, like, with all the Dash X and Mr. Ned stuff, I thought that was going to develop. But this kind of hops back and Dash X feels sort of to me like the way he was before. That which I, I don't know they could have they could great. it could have been pr- production order. Um, uh, Rene Arbogenois is great. Um, his nickname in the episode I thought was unfortunate. Uh, we can discuss that if yes. if, if you like. Um, <laughs> every time every time they bring up his nickname, I was I, I was just I kept looking at the floor. Yep. Um, I I think it's it's weird because I I think. It's Bob Balaban direct, and I always think he does a nice job. And like the dream sequences are fun, and everybody shopping like zombies are fun. It's weird, and I, I I like the ending and sort of the callback to the beginning of the episode in the ending, which I didn't see. I actually didn't see coming. Although if you kind of watch it, you can kind of see that something might be happening uh, related to that. I'm not. We'll probably ruin it in a bit, but I haven't ruined it yet. Um, <laughs> and, and so it's sort of like. It's it's like an episode, an episode that I almost love, but somewhere in there comes up a little short for me. I'm not 100 percent sure why. Maybe as we chat about it, I, I might be able to to sort of nail it down more. But, but what did you think of this one, Amy? Uh, I I have to agree with you. Um, I enjoyed the last episode a lot more than this one. I mean, it was fun. It was fun enough. But yeah, it it did seem like a step back as far as you know. We were getting somewhere in, in some sort of uh, mythology or, or whatever about Eerie or the uh, Dash X character, you know, things like that. This seemed kind of like it was a step back. Yeah, it's it's always I, – I like um, – I, I do like John Aston's character. Is it Mr. Radford? Mr. Yeah, I think it's Radford. Radford. Bradford, yeah. I, I believe so. And I, I like the way his character is just so, oh, the IRS, I haven't paid taxes in 12 years. You know, so what? You know, and it's like, it's, and then, and then, and then um, you know, Rene Arbogenois' character shows up and, and he's clearly up to some shenanigans. He's got a ridiculous name that becomes unfortunate. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, put that off a little bit more. Um, there is a great, and I don't know if I've ever noticed before, there is an awesome Elvis lamp. Yes. That Simon buys, and he kind of looks at it and goes, "Why did they make a lamp that looks like a guy in your paper route?" <laughs> Which is kick ass. Yeah. Um, Though I miss Elvis uh, popping up in episodes. I got it. I do I too. Uh, like he was in a couple for a row and I, in a row, and I was like, "Oh, good to see him." Yeah. But, yeah. yeah it's, it's 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 um, I. I mean, I mean the the concept of the episode. Uh, you, you know, okay. Here here's what um. Here's what I'm thinking. Uh, in the previous episode, we discussed some X-Files. Let me discuss a little X-Files again right here, which I think is one of the reasons why I find this episode slightly disappointing. If you've watched, and I, I imagine you have, Amy, the X-Files more or less sort of in a row or yes, in large chunks. numerous times. <laughs> yes, same here. And one of the things you will get in the X-Files is you will get an episode that's like, uh, like end of second season, start of the third, you get Anasazi, the Blessing Way paperclip. Mm-hmm. You get these huge revelations about aliens. You get Mulder dying. 
You get him coming back to life. You get this incredible sequence where they're discovering all these files and all this crap regarding Operation Paperclip and then a giant UFO over the top of the building. Then the next episode is about some kid who can control electricity. And it doesn't mention, it pretty much doesn't mention anything from the previous three episodes. It, and you're kind of like, okay, I get what they're doing, but um, uh, that feels a little weird. Right. And I think the I, I think the biggest little, the two biggest little weird examples in there, I don't know why I chose that, because that's a huge one. Um, at the start of the fourth season, I think it's the episode Heronvolk, I think, the one with the bees, when we first meet the bees. Mm-hmm. And in that one, Mulder's mother almost dies, but the bounty hunter... Sorry if this is spoiling it for everyone, but watch the show. Come on. Uh, the bounty hunter... Yeah, the bounty hunter brings... The alien bounty hunter brings her back to life because of the cigarette-smoking man at the end of the episode. But when the episode ends, we don't see that Mulder and Scully see that. The final moment is like the alien bounty hunter like about to restore Mulder's mom's health. The next episode that aired was the episode Home with, is it, is it the Peacocks? Yep. The, the, yeah, uh, which is just a crazy nutty episode. Oh, yeah. And then an episode or two, uh, two episodes later is Unruhe. Unruhe, the one with the stretched photographs mm-hmm. and like the, the really extended sort of man and um, a yeah, man speaking in. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And the thing about it was that, so you watch Heronvolk and you see the alien bounty hunter do his thing. And then it's never mentioned again. Mulder, how's your mom? What's she up to? Yeah. It's never mentioned until you see her alive and well again. Right. However, however, if you watch the DVD or the Blu-ray, you'll see that Unrue was supposed to be the episode following Heron Volk. And as they are driving to Mulder Scully are in the car, they're driving to the location of wherever they're going, and they have a discussion about Mulder's mother. It's more or less, Mulder, how's your mother? She's fine. We thought we were going to lose her, and then suddenly she came back. Oh, that's so great. And then the episode begins. It's it's better than that. I mean, that's you know that's just, that's just me yeah. making that up. Um, but, but because... That's the gist, though. Yes, but, but because the show was so popular at that point, they decided to follow up the season premiere with Home, which was like a no one under 17 admitted... Well, not quite. But, you know, it was a gory, crazy-ass episode but has no reference to the previous episode. And so we lost that scene. And so there's a feeling of, where did that plot line go? Mm -hmm. And they they do that on that show probably a half a dozen times. The other big one is um, Leonard Betts. Leonard Betts aired after the Super Bowl. There's a big revelation about Scully's health at the end Mm -hmm. of the episode. Then the next episode is the one with the golem, Kaddish which is actually like three or four episodes before Leonard Betts. So there's no mention of what happened in the previous episode. And so you just get these weird moments where in X-Files you build to this extreme moment. And then the next episode is like, okay, back to same as usual. And this episode is kind of the eerie Indiana version for that, uh, uh, for me of that. The, the pre- now, granted, the, the character here seems to be the devil, which is one thing. <laughs> Because in the previous episode, we had aliens. (laughs) Yes, yeah. um, uh, In this episode, yeah, we get the devil, and we get them all, like, taking buses to hell. And in the previous episode, we got aliens traveling through, you know, interdimensional um, uh, TVs. So we're going all over the place here. And yet, some some reason, for some reason, this episode feels smaller to me than the previous episode, even though the previous episode was only in a couple rooms. 
Um, there are a lot of people in this episode. There's a lot of moving around. There's a lot of craziness. But it doesn't have the same sort of oomph that uh, Royal Order of Corn has for me. Can we talk about uh, the name uh, Rene Arbogenois, what he's, he likes his character to be called? Yes, please. He, call, he likes his character to be called The Donald. <laughs> now, I know we mentioned a few episodes ago that, um, and I don't think, I, I, you know what? I do research sometime. The moment he said the Donald, I th- I actually put a check mark by it. No research. Yeah. So I didn't actually look into, and we're not going to talk about it no, long. No, but I didn't the look only into. thing I saw, which I didn't really research it, but I mean, obviously my immediate thought was probably the same as yours. And then when I did yes. look it up, that was verified. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so and, and I knew there was nothing other than that. Yes, that's that's yeah, that's the end of that research. But that's what he calls himself, and I'm sure back then. I mean, this was around the time. I was going to say, when did Home Alone two come out? I think it came out in '92. So this would have been a time where that character was, uh, you know, in the pop culture. And now, you know, he's. I guess he's still in the pop culture, but dangerously. And so we're not going to talk about him more than that. But that is. But every time he brings up that, that is his name. Um, we mentioned, uh, yeah, uh, Erie, Indiana getting political a few episodes before. This, I don't think, is them getting political. No. This is just them referencing a sleazy businessman. Yes. <laughs> and um, so we're going to leave it there. But that's, that's the, the, I guess that was slightly, and that would have been something that would have affected the episode when it originally aired. But as I was watching it now, I kind of kept thinking of that. Yes. Whenever they'd say his name or stuff, and it kind of put a bad taste in my mouth. Yes. Not through the fault of Erie, Indiana, just through the fault of history. Yep. And, and, <laughs> and hopefully there events. will, yes, current events. And hopefully there will be a time when people can sit down and watch this episode of Erie, Indiana and not think about that. Right. And, and hopefully it won't be in sort of a road warrior-esque situation. So, um, <laughs> uh, what, what else do you have about this one? Uh, let's see. Um, I don't know. I, I thought it was an okay episode, like I said, mm-hmm. um, I would say my favorite part was um, the dream part where they yes. had, had the uh, the singing group. Um, the song was super annoying, but also you can't deny that it's not catchy because yes. it was in my head. And, yes. you know, now that I think about it, it's back in my head and I want to get rid of that. So I'll have to, like, listen to something after this <laughs> to get that yes. out of my head. Yes. Um, but I, I love that character. I just I mm-hmm. mostly know him from Benson, obviously. Yes. So, um, the the guy who I, I considered him an agent of the devil, but I could see where he could be the devil. Um, mm-hmm. So I can go with that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I enjoyed it enough. Mm-hmm. I guess I liked it better think, than uh, No Brain, No Pain. Okay. So. Yeah, I, I think overall it's 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 a pretty fine episode. I just think um. Uh, and and obviously the show would have to do episodes like this as it went along. But I I almost if this had been earlier in the season, um, I think I would have liked it more. Um, later in the season, knowing yeah. we only have a knowing we only have a few episodes left, and there was sort of the mythology brought in in the last episode that we know is never going to get answered. To watch an episode like this and to see Dash X kind of back to his regular self mm-hmm. is kind of sort of a oh gosh oh I wish you were following up that instead. I mean, at least with Dash X this time, they gave him a reason to, you know, turn around like he always does. Like, hey, I'm going to, mm-hmm. you know, go against Marshall and Simon again. But this time it was just to save his own skin, too, basically, because yeah. he knew he was being betrayed. 
Um, so at yeah. least he, that was a slightly different take on his normal, you yeah. know, his normal behavior, which mm-hmm. seems to be like every episode. I mean, I still like the character, and uh, you know, I yeah, think he too. was a good addition. But me too. What um what what did you think of the ending? I thought the ending was pretty funny. I you know, I should have seen it coming with the, you know, the they referenced that uh, package that. Uh, yes, Marshall had like numerous times, so mm-hmm. and the taxes, so um, yeah, I, I thought that was a pretty good ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I guess I guess we'll we'll spoil it right here just because it, I think it's a, it's a, oh, do you want to not spoil it? No, no, I say so, spoil it. This okay. show is twenty something years old. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> I, I uh, what what it is in the end is you know, um, Mr. Radford there says you know, oh, the IRS are coming to audit me, and then Rene Arbogenois' character shows up. It clearly is not from the IRS, uh, but then at the very end, as he has all the contracts for their souls, and he's putting them in buses to go to hell. And he's kind of corralled the few people who might go against him into the world of stuff. Uh, Marshall is able to escape. Uh, it's done very quickly, and um, you know our our devil or devil lackey still is is threatening everyone else. When all of a sudden the IRS guy shows up, and it's the one thing that the devil is scared of, and um, he shows up and and demands the, all the the receipts and everything, which are the contracts and everything else, and. And uh, the devil guy has to give over the receipts, and he ends up, the devil ends up throwing a tantrum and kind of pounding himself through the ground to hell, and he's gone. And then, all of a sudden, the IRS guy pulls off his mask, and it's Marshall. And at the start of the episode, we had seen Marshall discussing credit, and then his mom had bought him a disguise kit using credit and Marshall couldn't pay his mom back so he used the disguise kit which we saw foreshadow or not I don't even it, it's fun the way they do it because the premise is that they're buying all this stuff on credit signing off contracts which are signing off their souls and that's sort of how it's introduced that he bought this disguise kit which is exactly the kind of thing you'd expect him to buy um, but then he uses it and it's it's I think it's really nicely done in fact so much so that the second time I watched the episode I forgot that that's what happened. Now, granted, there was like a week in between that, and who, you know what can go on in a life in a week. Right. But, but I, I remember sitting there the the second time, going, "Oh, I forgot the IRS guy came in." I thought this is a bit of a Deus Ex uh, machina a bit. But then he takes the mask off, and I was like, "Oh, of course, all right." So I think it's I think it's a nice ending. Yes, I do. Um, let's see. I like the um, I do I do think Bob Balaban directs the heck out of this there's a lot of lot of camera movement there are a lot of fun angles there are a lot of fun lenses he puts on the camera uh the the sequence where the, all the people are in the world of stuff mm-hmm. kind of traipsing around is really great when you see like the dad has a tuba um cindy has like the those glasses where like the <laughs> eyes come yeah. out in springs the mom has like a squirt gun and she's like in a nightgown on the counter with it and it's just it's it's pretty it's pr- pretty nicely directed. Yeah, I like um, the choreography of the basketball players walking down the street, all balancing yes. the ball at the same time, very zombie-like. And it's, I love I love that because when we see them in the opening credits, they look like zombies yes, already. Yes, that's true. But but now but now we, they're actual. Uh, now they're in their pajamas, I guess. That's the difference. Yes, yes, zombies and PJs. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, I I you know it's it's an episode that I um. I, I, I like. I don't love, but I like. I, I think it's. I 
I think it's an episode you could show to people randomly to get them into the show and to see how mm-hmm. crazy it is. Right. But watching it in order, it feels a little off. Uh, did you uh, so. did you notice that the twins from the Foreverware episode were in the world of stuff? Oh yes, that's right. Oh my gosh. Yep, yep. They 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 they're they're crossing. I forget what they have. Uh, yeah. Um. Teddy bears. Yeah, that's, they have teddy yes, bears. Yes, that's right. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's right. Yep, yep. They, it's nice. All the callbacks are really, really yeah, nice. Yeah, um, on my second viewing, I was trying to pull out more, see if I could see anybody else, but I didn't really get any. Mhm. I wish Elvis was there. I guess his lamp is. Yeah. Yeah, I miss Elvis. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. He really, he really like. There were a couple episodes there where he seemed to be one of the city fathers, as it were. Yeah. Um, I guess this is kind of different from a city fathers kind of thing. This is a crazy, devilish kind of thing. I, I do like the when the uh, whoever Rene Arbogenois' character is supposed to be calls up like a local TV station or whatever to get advertising time, and he says something like. Oh, don't worry. I work for one of the oldest corporations in the world. We have um, locations everywhere. Yeah. You know, we'll pay. We'll pay immediately as soon as you send the bill. I'm like, yeah, that's um, that um, that 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 in some ways probably relates even more to his name nicknamesake than yes. um, we would like to imagine. Uh, the more I say that, the more I want to run away from the episode. But I, I'm not going to. I'm not going. Yeah, to. Yeah, you got to take it in the um, context of its time. Yes. And that's yes, what I kept exactly. trying to tell myself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Occasionally, it was a little tough. Yeah. Um. Uh. So let's see. Elvis Lamp. What What else do you have in this? I'm gonna do a final scan of my notes um, here. I think we pretty much covered it. I mean, this wasn't my favorite episode, so I mean, mm-hmm. I I enjoyed it enough, but I I didn't take too many notes. It was uh, there wasn't yeah as much as other episodes there wasn't as much going on it was pretty pretty straightforward yeah yeah i think that there are some nice details here and there but it's a pretty straightforward the the devil or the devil's friend shows up in erie and tries to take everyone's soul through getting them to buy stuff and it's consumer yeah it's consumer hey you know in what in the last episode we had a little gender politic type stuff the other one we had politics politics and this one we get sort of capitalism uh, the devil using capitalism to um, to destroy a town. Yep. Uh, uh, so I oh I will um, uh, uh, I don't know where Marshall gets his stuff from and why he can't pay for his disguise kit. But what about that microscope thing he has to look at the fine print? Yeah. <laughs> what is that? What is that? Exactly. Uh, it was like what, an overhead projector, but I don't know more advanced. <laughs> yes, yes, because it's um uh uh um. Because they're looking at the, the, the contracts to see what – because there's some really fine print. Yeah, and then they set up this huge like – I don't know. It's it's not, it's not like a uh, – it, it's not like steampunk technology or something no. like that. But it's this weird – it's this weird kind of like a little satellite dish with a, like an old like telescope almost like you'd see on like a pirate ship like going through hmm, I uh, wonder if into it a light. was and, related to the no brain, no – Pain episode where they had all his stuff from the uh, oh. from the shopping cart. <laughs> oh, that's right. Maybe they because cons- I'm some sure stuff from there. Yeah, just like stuff he collected that they assembled into some sort of super mic. Because because I, I like the fact that they have him look through a microscope and then they're like, no, we can't see it through this one. But then he has a secondary thing which can go even deeper to look, and and they don't dwell on it too long. But you're like. They're setting up some cool stuff yeah. <laughs> there to to examine. 
Um, you know, Mr. Mr. Ned was right in the last episode. Marshall is really, you know, he's 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 the one to he's the one to keep an eye on. Yeah. Um, so uh, so I guess if that's all you have, I think that's all I have. Yes, twelve years. Da, da, da. Yes, um, if that's all you have. Oh, I I do like the the devil being able to. Um, uh, Mr. Radford, close your eyes. And he closes his eyes and he puts him through like the you're in Hawaii yeah. <laughs> and you're wearing a Hawaii. That's <laughs> kind of a funny because he's just he's just saying this this stuff and John Aston is just like yes I mean I look good <laughs> yes mm, yeah which is a great seat. Um, so if if that's all you have, Amy, and yeah. that's I think all I have. Um, uh, where can we find you online? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Amy underscore the underscore conqueror. Awesome. Thank you again. And uh, I guess I will sign off with this this one with, uh, you just can't get enough. <laughs> you just can't get enough of the world of stuff or whatever it is. You just can't get enough. That's going to sit in your head uh. wor- worse <laughs> than the Halloween 3, 8 more days to Halloween tune. That is going to sit in your head. So I'll just leave with that, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. A partir deste momento, eu quero convidar você... A ser um espião comigo. Missão secreta. O governo dos Estados Unidos da Norte-América te invita a ser. Espia comigo. Operação Mascarada. Actuación estelar de Rod Taylor. Y este Ali. Y Greg Edigan como Danny. Masquerade, episode 10, Sleeper. Uh, this one is directed by Sidney Hayers, like like the previous one. Written by Mark Rogers, April 13th, 1984. Amanda Reyes, where were you on that day? Oh my gosh, I was 13. So I must have been listening to Duran Duran. Nice. I would, uh, I was, um, geez, I was 11. And I was, geez, I don't know. I was probably... I was probably watching like Monty Python or something like that. Um, or, 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 you know what I was doing? I was watching Masquerade. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This is Sleeper. This is 10 episodes. We only have three left after this. Um, let me go through the plot line of this one. I forgot a name or two on this one, but I'm going to try to do my best. Oh, and by the way, how are you, man? Well, you can just use the actors' names. You can just use oh, the true. actors' yeah. names. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, how are you, by the way? You doing okay? I'm, I'm okay. I'm just sitting here thinking about Duran Duran. You think about Duran Duran for another minute or so while I try to go through this one. Uh, Brigadier General John Crawford is a mole. He's in, not a mole. Uh, that would be funny, though, <laughs> if he were an actual mole. He's our first Brigadier General who's a mole, who's a rodent. Oh, is a mole, rolls, a moles are rodents? Rolls are rodents. There you go, damn. Spoonerism time. Moles are rodents, right, I think? Um, anyway, uh, Brigadier 
John Crawford, Brigadier General John Crawford, uh, who's obviously high up in, in the U.S. government, is in Munich. He is a mole working for the KGB. When we first see him, he pushes a defecting uh, East German fella, I think a scientist named Kurt Lohmann, off of a skyscraper as two little kids watch. And we learn later it's an unfinished skyscraper that's been designed by his, um, uh, his mistress, uh, who is German. We, uh, but then we see the gang, Sandy, uh, Sandy, right? Yeah, and um, Casey. Why do I keep saying, damn it? Uh, Casey, Danny, and Lavender are in the limo. They're driving along. And we learn about uh, John Crawford being the spy. And so what they're going to do is they're going to fly out to Munich. And there is about to be a big uh, conference. Uh, I forget what the conference is about. It's a big conference. It's probably uh, it's oil-related or it's weapons-related or something like that. The Secretary of State is going to be there, and sitting next to him is going to be Brigadier General Crawford, who's basically going to be relaying. He actually has a recorder with him that he's going to take to the meeting, and he's going to record everything, and it's going to get back to the KGB, and it's going to be bad. So they have to try to um, convince uh, Crawford that basically like the, the KGB doesn't love him anymore, I believe is the way Lavender describes it. <laughs> is that, I think that Couldn't they just threaten to execute him? Couldn't they just turn to execute him for treason if he doesn't <laughs> spill information? Wouldn't that have been easier? Well, yeah, th this is this is one of those tricky ones where it's like, you know, it's one thing to um, discredit a, a KGB agent or ruin a casino. But when you actually have someone who's supposed to work for the government, arrest him. Take him in, you know. I, I guess the theory is that they want him to sort of come back on his own and say sort of like, yeah, I did this. And... Um, I don't know why. I don't think we're meant to question it that much. Um, maybe we are. I don't know. But uh, so um, uh, so what they do is they recruit four people: a guy named Al, who does a lot of wiretapping; Tanya Tucker, who sings and is a race car driver. Her character isn't named Tanya, but we're going to call her that because for some reason I didn't write her name down. And then a clairvoyant <laughs> named. Can I just tell you something really interesting about the credits on IMDb? So I went on IMDb to see if, you know, what the characters' names were, and sometimes they don't have them. And just a couple things I want to point out. So the uh, big government guy, I can't remember what you called him. You just mentioned him, the one that's that's giving information to the KGB. Crawford. He's played by Cornell Wilde, who we all know, oh, of yes. course, from Gargoyles. But he's not – not only is he not listed in the credits – but which is it's Cornell Wild. I don't understand yes. that he's famous. But neither is Lonnie Chapman, who's the guy who plays his friend that helps the masquerade people. We'll talk about him in a minute. But there's no names for any of the characters that aren't main characters that are on every episode, except for this guy who played Loman, who's played by somebody named Norbert Weisner or Weiser. Do you oh. think do you think Norbert went in IMDb and added the character name? Because I would. because nobody yeah. else has the character names listed. And so yes. why Norbert? Why? Yeah. Why? So, and he also has a little IDB picture too, even though I don't know who he is. And so, anyway, I just wanted to point that out. So, so for some reason, this IMDb entry is incomplete, and we weren't able to use it for backup. And as far as I'm concerned, we can call them all by their actor names anyway, okay. because I'm not going to remember Rodney's like Al, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, then we meet the final uh, two, who are on. Uh, and Alan Thick. Is it Thick of the Night? I don't know. Had that happened yet? Yes. They're on a, uh, I love the show. 
Thick of the Night was awesome. So I'm going to say it was uh, Thick of the Night that they're on. And it's Miss Emily, who's a clairvoyant, and Max, who is, um, uh, well, it's Dick Van Patten doing sort of, um, it's interesting because Miss Emily is a clairvoyant and she's doing something with like a card that Alan Thick has handed her. And Max is kind of debunking everything she's doing. So she's kind of like a real clairvoyant, and he's kind of like a pen and teller type thing, where he, he will he's... say, you know, open this envelope. And they'll open the envelope. Oh, oh no, with Alan Thick, it's take out, uh, do you have a dollar bill? Yes. Okay, um, are the first four serial uh, numbers this, this, and this? Yes. Are the next four this, this, and this? Yes. There you go. And he reads off, he says the whole serial number. How did you do that? Well, I saw you going to the commissary. I asked the person at the cash register to if you if you you if you paid with a five dollar he pays with a five dollar bill um, only give him dollar bills that have the same serial number so I knew that you only have dollar <laughs> bills that were, and he he does that several That's times it's a lot it, yeah That's yeah a lot. and he he, so, he he does he does one that I really like at the end which we'll talk about at the end which is really clever but that's his thing that's his shtick. Well, I saw him as John Norlis from the Norlis tapes, but like way less oh, sexy. Sure. Well, hey. Yeah. That's that's a Van Patten. He's Well, a, yeah, no, it's... I mean all the Van Pattens are extremely sexy except for their dad. Like I don't know how that happened, but like Vince and Nels and the other one whose name I can't remember, they're all pretty <laughs> hot. Timoth Timothy? Tim Van Patten. It might be, yes. Well, they, they have a brother, though, too. The guy that was on Master Ninja is his brother. He's not his son. Yes. He just yes. is young. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, I didn't... Yeah. Okay, I guess I didn't... Um, I guess I... Uh, I don't fully understand the Van Pattens. Um, I just enjoy <laughs> Oh, them. I do. I just, I just enjoy them. So, just, uh, just an aside, just an aside, mm. but, like, my boss's boss doesn't know anything about the Van Pattens. And I'm like, have you never seen Vincent Van Patten before? And she's like, no. And so I sent her a picture and she's like, oh, oh. And then I was like, do you, have you never seen Barry Van Dyke? And she's like, no. And so I sent her a picture of Barry Van Dyke and she was like, oh my God. So I'm just saying, I, I don't know I what that point of that was, but I had to get that out there. <laughs> I love it. I, I was going to say, I have, I have an also uh, semi-pointless thing about the Van Pattens. There's an episode of, <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's either Master Ninja or Master Ninja 2 on MST, where um, Joel and the bots make a, like a flow chart that begins with like Dick and Joyce and spreads throughout yes. and shows the whole family tree. And he says something like, and this is Dick spreading his hellish seed across the world. Or something like that, which was a line I always loved. Um, but it's uh, not but, hellish. It's wonderful. No, no. They're, they're, well, they're in the middle of watching. And you know what? I know you love The Master. You reviewed it. I forget which site did you review this, the Blu-ray set for? Oh, it was for Diabolique. Yes. Yeah, I know you enjoy that show. I do, too. But I can also watch the episodes when they do it on MST because they're, they're funny episodes. But um, uh, the yeah. thing with Dick is that uh, I, I liked I liked Dick Van Patten. I... Um, Seeing him in, you know, when he played Friar Tuck and when things were rotten. Seeing him as, he's in an episode of Ellery Queen where he plays a real Weasley guy. And, of course, in Eight is Enough, um, where his comb-over is actually, um, can get distracting. But I am actually, in my Wait. journey through Eight is Enough, I'm in season four, I think. Can can I give you some more pointless uh, Van Patten trivia? Uh, it's only I'm marginally in. attached to him. Okay. Yes. So... 
I recently met somebody and um, I was talking to them and they casually told me, very casually, like this was just something that happens every day, that his brother-in-law is the character that Dick Van Patten plays on Eight is Enough. Because, you know, that movie is based on a book. Yeah. And that book is about a real-life editor of a newspaper who had eight children and was married, you know. And this person's sister is married to the guy who wrote that book, and Eight is Enough was based off his his brother-in-law. And I was like wow. – and his nieces and nephews and everything. And I was like – and he just said it like it was no big deal. And I was like, you're joking. You're joking because Eight is Enough <laughs> was like my favorite show from like 1977 to 1981 or something, you know. Sure, and sure. um, And yeah. Yeah. Just, that's wow. just, you know, his brother-in-law. Wow, <laughs> that is astounding. Yeah, I, I, eight, eight is enough. Is uh, like uh, I think Warner Archive put those out on DVD, I believe. And I, mm-hmm. yeah. And I, 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 over the past two years, because I can't watch a lot of them, um, oh, because no, like I certain, can marathon them. Like I, I wish I could, but I've been slowly working my way through them, and I'm at, I'm at the beginning of season four right now. I think we just met. Is it Merle the Pearl or whoever, the one who marries Susan? Oh, I love Merle the Pearl. He played Grand Putnam yeah. on General Hospital. That's Brian, Brian yeah, Patrick he, Clark is the actor. Yes. So I, I've just begun that uh, that plot line. Um, but Dick Van Patten in this is very different from um, uh, Mr. Bradford. I The only one of their names I ever remember is Susan because it's Susan Richardson played Susan. I don't remember. I well, it's not as bad. It's not as bad. Well, it's actually worse than the Joes on Petticoat Junction. One day I'll get them right. The first episode of Eight is Enough. You can look up the title of that, and that's how they remember all the kids' names because it's like Apple something something something, oh, and yes. so the A stands for ad. You know, they they have it all worked out so that the because mm-hmm. they had so many kids. There's a, it's actually a joke on the show how they keep it all together. <laughs> And so they use this word that they made up or something like that, and it's the title of the pilot episode, I think. And that's that. Well, if you if you look that up, that might help you remember Tommy, and David, yes, and Mary and, and Nancy and Elizabeth and, and uh, Nicholas. Yeah, I can yes. I can name almost all of them off the top of my head. I I think I can remember Nicholas because his name crops up in like um like yes Nicholas there is a Santa Claus and you won't have Nicholas to push around anymore the one where he ends yeah, up with yeah, hobos yeah. on the beach or something like that that's that's awesome oh I love that's that a, one that's a great one that I was a two that hour one. episode so I I think I told you I met Willie Ames and we were talking about the eight is it was going somewhere else I'm sorry we were talking about the eight oh, is no. enough reunion movies. And I was like, and I was very specific. I was like, I'm not talking about you, but I have to tell you, I think Tommy became an asshole. And he's like, you're right. Ooh. Tommy was kind of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't want to think uh, I was saying he was an asshole, but the character yes. that he played, yeah. I think, became an asshole as the series progressed. And he was yeah. like, yeah, I think Tommy was kind of an asshole. I don't know if he just said that to please me or whatever, but it made me feel so good. I, I will say when I started watching the show, and then we'll get back to Masquerade, everyone. Uh, when I started, because we're have we we haven't even really started the plot yet. Um, uh, when I started, when I started watching Eight is Enough, the first season is one of those '70s sort of give them seven or eight episodes kind of thing, and I watched yeah. the first three or four of them and was like, I don't know why I'm still watching this. But then there is an episode with w- Willie Ames's character where he is like going to a prom or something but then when he and he's really excited and and he goes to the girl's house 
and and the dad or mom is like, um, she just went with Steve from down the street. I always make Steve the guy who you know either saves the day or ruins everything. Steve, yeah, she and, and he's like, what? And instead of going home, he like wanders around town for the evening, and then I think he goes to visit his brother. I think who was in his own apartment at that time, and uh, and that was the episode that actually hooked me on the show. I thought it was funny up until the heartbreaking bit, and then I thought it was really well written. And it, it it's a very uneven show at times. Like the few times I've I've sat down um, with my wife and said because she used to watch it, and I said let's watch some episodes. We always end up watching some that are really weird, and just like oh that's a little strange. So I'm like no no it's it's good it's good it's just it's very uneven I think. But that's our eight is enough. That's a spinoff for something somewhere down the road. We'll mention eight is enough again, but um, where were we? We're okay. So Miss Emily, Matt, so Tanya Tucker has no name. Yes, Al is wiretapping and speaks German. Although I don't know that that really comes into play too much because the well, one time we I see think, him talking I to a German woman. Yeah, I think it's insinuated that that's supposed to be in German. Okay, all right. Um, and then Miss Emily and Max, the clairvoyant and the person who seems to make a living debunking clairvoyance. Hey, it's what nice work if you can get it. Yes. So uh, they arrive in Munich and uh, they um, there there is a, a guy there, a German assassin there who kills with a white scarf, which seems like some strange... Is, oh, that must be Norbert. It could be, yes. Um, I, I forget. <laughs> um and 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 so you meet uh, yeah Crawford and his girlfriend, uh, who obviously like I said designed the building that uh, the guy was thrown off of at the beginning, and what happens is they get uh, Crawford and his gal and another couple military related to go to this club that Tanya Tucker is singing at, and then afterwards they bring up Miss Emily and and Max, and they have them they they bug the car that um, uh, uh, Crawford is in. So they, well, they got the wiretapping guy, so they, they tap the wire, and they, they get a bunch of information from him, which Miss Emily presents as being um, clairvoyant stuff. And it's, 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 it's a tricky, it's a slightly tricky episode to describe because um, uh, there's some, uh, what, well, one of the things they say is sort of like, um, I forget exactly what it is. She says, like, there's a car and there's an explosion or something like that. And then that night, as the Brigadier General and his gal leave, Tanya Tucker, who's a crazy car chasing gal, and and uh, Danny kind of get into a car chase with them. And the car that our gang is in flips over and explodes, which all kind of matches up with what Miss Emily had said. And so they're kind of like, and, and the Brigadier General is like, oh, I, I didn't know at first I was a little iffy, but now I think she might be on, on, you know, on the up and up. And then he goes to see Miss Emily and she gives him some more information, uh, kind of intimating that, you know, be careful. Maybe the people you're trusting aren't people you should trust and that kind of thing. And, and Miss Emily has also had a proper bit of ESP where she sees the general, Brigadier General, go into the conference with a briefcase and then she sees lots of fire, I believe. Or maybe she sees the fire when the car explodes. It doesn't matter. Something bad happens in the conference. And so I don't know how far I want to spoil it. 
right here because we will spoil it. But suffice it to say, the the conference is rolling a little bit, uh, is getting closer and closer. Something about the briefcase he's going to bring in and the contents might be bad for everyone in the conference. And his girlfriend might not be as faithful as she seems to be. So I'll stop it there. Amanda, what did you think of Sleeper? You know, this is one I've seen several times, and I don't know why this particular episode is the one that I seem to see more than the others, but I know it pretty well, I guess, um, because there's things in it that are interesting to me. Like, you talk about the Brigadier General's girlfriend, and she's a really interesting character because she's kind of torn. Like, she was brought in to con him, and she's then put in a position to kill him, and she can't do it because we find out she's been in deep cover for two years and in the two years that they've been together, she's fallen in love with him because she lives with him and he's, and, and he seems nice to her. Right. And so, um, so she's, it's actually kind of compelling. Um, I think for the character, number two, I love Ron Mazak. He plays Alanis. I love him. I love him. I love him. I will watch him in anything. He is basically Clue Gulliger light. Like he's like, yes. he's been in as yes. many things as Clue Gulliger, but maybe not as famous and not as edgy. He does a lot of, he's not, not an edgy guy. If you ever look him up, I follow him on Facebook. He's like, he was married to like his high school sweetheart and has like a hundred thousand kids. And that's his thing. And, um, <laughs> He would come into some fame later when he joined Murder, She Wrote, after the Tom Bosley character left, because he went to go do Father Dowling, and he became the sheriff on the show, and I loved it. I loved it. But there is just this little window of Ron Mazak somewhere in the 70s. He's on an episode of Good Times where he plays a cop. And um, JJ gets busted for a crime he didn't commit, and he's the cop at the station. And it must be from the first season, because I think the dad is still on, John Amos. And John Amos and Ron Mazak are, like, in the same room together, and it just makes me want to climb the walls. There's so much sex in that scene. <laughs> and Ron Mazak never reached that level of sexy again. And as far as I know, he didn't have it before. But there's something about that one episode of Good Times. So whenever I see him, I attach this memory to him. And I just think he's sex on a stick. I don't know why, but I do. Mm. And so I love him. And whenever he shows up in something, I'm like, okay, it's going to be a little sexy, guys. And he always plays like a dad or something. And But I just love I love him to death. I think he's wonderful. I think Barbara Rush is great. And she's really good in this. Like, she's really serious about her part as a clairvoyant. There's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of high class acting on her part, I think. Um, yes. It's it's almost like it, like a master class in it in a way. And I'm not saying that she's a tour de force or anything, but there's something about older actors and actresses that show up in a lot of these TV shows that bring a different element or style with them. And she's got it, and she's really good. Um, Tanya Tucker, not a very good actor, but I really like her because she's super charming and everything. And I just rewatched, um, I didn't rewatch, I just saw for the first time Georgia Peaches, which is that pilot movie Roger Corman made where she and um, the lead singer of Berlin, Terry Nunn and Dirk Benedict are like the, are like the Dukes of Hazzard kind of. What? And Sally Kirkland is like, oh, yeah, it's on Amazon prime. And, um, She's really good in that, and she plays a singer, of course, because I think she cast play singer and everything, because I feel like that's where her, obviously, she's a famous singer, but I feel like her acting is not bad, but her singing is pretty tremendous, and so even in this, she's really good, and it's just like, it's like nothing music, you know what I mean? And so, like, um, and the fact that they have Alan Thicke for one scene is so bizarre to me, but I guess he wasn't that famous then. But I thought for sure he was going to come along. It was going to be like the talk show host, the clairvoyant, and the debunker. Somehow yes. we're all going to get intertwined. 
adventure, but that yeah. didn't happen. But it's, so it's got a really great uh, cast of characters, including Cornell Wilde as well. Um, and it's fun. Um, I don't know if fun is the right word. It's kind of a darker episode. I don't know. It's more intriguing, maybe, is what I'm thinking. I think there's something about the story that I find captivating, more so than a lot of the other stories, where, like, in the last one, like, you had to start to talk about how it ended for me to remember how it ended. Here, I have a very specific memory, pretty much, of where everything goes from point to point. And maybe that's because um, it's clearer in the storytelling, but also I think the actors are pulling this along in a different way. Maybe and um, including Barbara Rush, I think she's kind of carrying it in in a way um, that I find really interesting. And I also, like I said, I'm really compelled by the girlfriend character because that's something you don't necessarily see in these shows because all the characters you don't really get much about their lives, and here you get an idea of the person that she was and the person she became. And it's kind of an interesting arc that she has, strangely enough, in this little 45 minute episode. So there's something kind of captivating about it. I quite liked it. I, I don't I, I don't know if I'd call it the, the 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 best written of the episodes, but there was something about it that when I watched it the first time I thought, hey, that was pretty good. Then the second time when I took more detailed notes, I was like, actually, this is quite good. I think they do a really nice job of it. And I think what you said with Barbara Rush is is perfect because she has a scene with like lavender, um, which I think is in the um, the opening teaser things where she says like, you're going to kill the Brigadier General, aren't you? And then she has a scene with Crawford, which are really good scenes. And the sort of things you don't quite see in, in something like this, um, unless, uh, I, maybe unless Barbara rushes in, I don't know. But And there's sort of a feeling, it, it's interesting because the, the premise is we are going to convince Crawford that the KGB doesn't love him anymore. But the weird thing is it becomes, <laughs> you, learn, you learn in the end that the person who has kind of led him along, his girlfriend, who's supposed to be detached, has fallen in love with him. So sort of the person, and oh my gosh, what happens to her is just like, what? Come on, masquerade. What are you doing? And and the uh, and, and there's so, so, something sort of interesting about that. They don't, it's, they they don't actually have to convince him that the KGB doesn't love him anymore because the KGB never did, and, and so when that kind of comes out, and in, in the end there's, I, I I just think it's really nicely done. Um, I I think they they handle it really well. And Crawford starts off obviously throwing a guy off a building, but then in the end, right. I quite I don't know if I liked him per se, but I felt some sympathy for him and I kind of was yes, like oh yes. yeah and 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 I I felt a sympathy for everyone except the guy with the white scarf he can fall off a building uh, there there is uh, there is a great moment I think a really nicely done moment of suspense in the final sequence where everyone's going in the um, meeting and he has his briefcase and the briefcase has a recorder in it uh, which he's been allowed to bring to record the conference. I don't know how that works, but he's got a paper that says he can. Um, and I guess whatever else he has in his briefcase. And there's just a great moment where, like, Lavender and um, and Casey and uh, Al, I think, are, like, crammed in a little van. And, like, uh, uh, Danny and Tanya Tucker are in, like, another car up the hill. 
and they're all kind of watching everything that's happening, watching the white scarf guy, watching the girlfriend, keeping an eye on everything, listening to everything, and sort of the realization like, okay, he's going to the conference, we know there's something going on with the contents of that briefcase, and then just sort of watch Lavender as he hears that the the guy says, no, the tape recorder didn't have anything in it. And you watch, kind of watch Lavender's face as he's like, wait a minute, the, the tape recorder doesn't have it, da-da-da-da-da. And he's kind of like works through what it is, and then suddenly he figures out what's going on. He's like, oh my god! And he leaps out of the thing and rushes into it. It's a really nicely done moment of suspense. I, uh, and I, uh, it, it, I, I think it works real really well. Um, uh, and yeah, I, I wish they'd given Al a bit more to do. Um, but uh, I guess, you know, he's Al. Uh, but I think it's a pretty solid episode. <laughs> I, 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 do like, I do like the fact that in a show which is very, I'm not going to call it reality-based because we had those weird see-through shiny cards in the last episode. But in an episode that's, in a show that's kind of reality-based, one of the um, uh, threads they follow, one of the roads they go down, is based on a clairvoyance um, premonition. Which I found, which is shot like a premonition, kind of all hazy and foggy yeah. and that kind of thing. So, so yeah, I, I think it's a, I think it's a pretty darn good episode, well written, and 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 the characters are, you know, they're not as much fun as the characters in the previous episode, but they're they do everything they need to do, and I think they do it quite well. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned Cornell Wilde too, because I was talking about Barbara Rush, but Cornell Wilde carries a lot of it too, because he is. It's when you said that, I, I hadn't really thought about it, I guess, consciously. But you're right, I do kind of feel for him by the end. Not that I think he should get away with anything, or that he's a good guy necessarily, but he is quite likable. And so he's Lonnie Chapman plays the guy who's in the military, who's really close to him, who's helping masquerade with the setup at the uh, club where he's going to get his future red or whatever and he's really torn about it he's like this guy is my friend and i don't you better be right that he's been doing this because i don't want to betray him and and you know that kind of sets up this idea that he is really likable you know like nobody really wants to turn him in or do the things that they have to do and they're only doing it because what he's doing is so severe that it's like we better at least play along just in case but I don't believe that this guy is capable of that and I think that the way Cornell Wilde plays it he plays it as a loving boyfriend a good friend you know and he's concerned when he goes to visit the clairvoyant he's he's very likable in that scene and so it's interesting and I don't mean likable like that sleazy fun likable like I mean he just seems like a good person and so at the, and at the end he's so dignified because when yes. they go to arrest him he just the way he walks out with his kind of head held high he knows he's been caught and and he doesn't deny anything and he just kind of walks out in this very stately kind of way and it's kind of like wow that's kind of not upsetting but there's like a moment you have with him and so I think the integration of these really wonderful kind of old school actors adds another level of I don't know pathos or whatever to the to the episode that makes it kind of more intriguing I, I, I was going to mention the ending because, yeah, Lavender saves the day and then sort of Crawford is like, OK, yeah, you know, the jig is up. Let's let's go. And there is a there is kind of a, 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 a like, like you said, there's a, a dignity to it and sort of like, um, you know what? I I uh, I screwed up and I, I was chose the wrong side there. Well, from our point of view, he chose the wrong side right. and, and he kind of leaves. It reminded me of and this is this is um. 
just a, a quick one. Uh, there's a Doctor Who story back from 1970 called The Ambassadors of Death with a character named General Carrington who was an astronaut who went to Mars uh, and then he comes back and he's really xenophobic and crazy. And at the and this is kind of a spoiler, so Doctor Who fans stop for the next 20 seconds. But at the very end of it, when the Doctor stops, like an not an interplanetary incident from happening, um, it it ends in sort of the very same way, where instead of like calling out General Carrington for being a jackass and almost causing all this trouble, uh, the Doctor kind of lets him have a moment of dignity and say like, you know, like I I did what I thought. I had to do and the general is arrested and leaves and that's kind of what this reminded me of it, it has kind of the same sort of feeling of uh, I did what I thought was right but um, I, it, it wasn't and I, I've made a mistake and, and he goes and it's and I wish I wish the episode had ended right there because that is a kind of rather powerful moment because you get the suspense of the scene you get the 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 the, the kind of demise of the the, the girlfriend and, and white scarf and you get the excitement of Lavender running as fast as he's ever run, and then you get that moment. But then it has to do the closing scene where they're all hanging around and laughing, which is okay, but I wish it had ended with Crawford leaving. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, because uh, I think they, were, they all felt kind of conflicted about it, I would think, to some degree. And it would have been great if they played that up more. That mm -hmm. I don't mean everybody, the, the masquerade uh, people that they've brought in, but like, you know, the the agents, you know, yes. because this is one of their own. And that would have been a really great way. But I guess this show, what, this is not Scarecrow Mrs. King, guys, you know. Yeah. So like, you know, Scarecrow Mrs. King, that would have been that would have been it. But like here they had to do the thing. But I kind of like the end because I don't think that their world has enough Dick Van Patten in it. And yes. it really helps just to have a little bits here and there. And so there's enough Dick Van Patten in that little closing segment that makes it worthwhile. Yes, and he gets, um, I don't know if this is a spoiler, but he gets a, a fun moment where um, he hands Lavender an envelope on the plane and says, read this when we're all done. And Lavender's okay, and he puts it in a spot in his hotel room, and then he opens it up at, at when it's all done and everyone's sitting around enjoying themselves, and he basically, on the sheet of paper in the envelope, is written everything they just went through. And like, how did you do that? And he basically says, yeah, right before you all came in here, I came in and substituted an envelope that had all that written on it. And I thought that's, to me, that's very Penn and Teller, kind of like, um, I, it's misdirection. Now I'm telling you exactly what I did. And everybody laughs and has a great time. Um, and that's the way all these episodes end. I, I, you know, it's, it's fun. It's fun. Tanya Tucker's there and it's great. Uh, <laughs> when Tanya's in the room, it's a party. It's a party. I love her hair. She got very. This was if you were in 1984, oh. and I think my mom had this hair at this time. Can Can we talk about her little stand-up act she does before she sings or after she sings when she talks about <laughs> that I've pleased a lot of husbands, but I've never once had to go into the kitchen. And it's and the way she <laughs> delivers the lines are like ridiculous because like yes. she has for every line there's like a different pose of her body like she tilts her head a certain way to give one line and then she turns her back to the audience and then turns her head to look at them like it's like tanya what are you doing but i love it i love there's she's just really likable you know what i mean and when i say i don't think she's a very good actress i don't mean to d diminish her at all i think no. she's she's working hard i just i just think that she's new at this apparently and she's working on it but but her her delivery is fine she's very engaging in the film or in the episode but like that scene is so I remember that specifically also she's wearing this really great like 
I guess it's a dress, but the top of it is sheer up to the shoulders. Yes. And it's got like these little uh-huh. sequins that go around that part. That, and then the sweater part starts at the bottom. It's very 80s and I'm super in love with it. Um, but just, and she's got these like cat eye makeup um, on the sides and, and whatever. It's like, it's almost like the motels or something. But if they were country singers, you know, that <laughs> band, like that she has the, she looks yeah. like the motels to me, like the singer with but blonde. And, um, but that line about the husbands in the kitchen is hilarious. Just the way <laughs> it's not a funny joke. And nobody in the audience really laughs either. Like, it's like they don't even force it. Like, yeah. they're like, just yeah. oh. react naturally to this joke. <laughs> nobody laughs at all. And it's amazing. <laughs> and she, there, there's a moment, um, it's actually slightly distracting when the Brigadier General uh, the next day goes to the club to talk to her and just say, who is that? Do you know who that was that was in here, that clairvoyant? And and Tanya's talking to, to, to Crawford, and she has like, it's not quite a headband, but it's like there's something around oh, yeah. her forehead. I, I'm looking at it the whole time oh, going, that's not that a headband. What is that? Yeah. That's, that's, um, that's like aerobic wear that we did every day. Was it? That's okay. like fancy aerobic wear. Yeah, because like I think the Let's Get Physical song had sort of brought in aerobics. I mean, aerobics were very popular regardless, but I think yeah. that song and the style and the leotards and stuff got really popular. So people were figuring out ways to incorporate them into everyday life. And so there was like this string right. that you would tie around your head. And sometimes it would have little pieces of metal on it, or it'd be like a really shiny purple. Mine was really shiny and purple. And, um, and it was thin like that, like a shoelace kind of. And then uh-huh. you tied it around the top or it had a cinch in the back or something and then and then you were set for the day and it was kind of like your look and I had one and I, I had several I had a couple I had a couple that were like gold and another color and they were braided together and then you wow. tied that around your head so you had gold with like the maroon braid yeah I had a couple of those I had leg warmers I had the whole thing so it was like how we took like a aerobic <laughs> wear and then made it every day like we do it now everybody wears their freaking what do you call those, like, really tight those gym, gym pants? Those gym pants, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, everybody wears them everywhere now. It's it's equivalent of that, except it was cooler in the 80s because it was more stylish. Yeah. Now, do you have any pictures of that that I can post to sh- alongside a screenshot of Tanya <laughs> Tucker to show? <laughs> I'll be honest. I have, like, three photos of myself from when I was, like, a kid, and I have no idea where they are. And, no, I don't have any <laughs> photos, but I remember specifically having those headbands and loving them and having, like, the okay. purple – I had purple leg warmers that went with the purple headband. Nice. And you know what I mean? And I had a really great black mini skirt sweater dress. Oh, it was like cool. a mini skirt nice. and then a sweater what? that went on top and they were both made of the same sweater material and they were black, but they had like red and blue stripes going around the skirt and the top. Uh-huh. And when I was 11 or 12, we had like a little carnival at my school and I wore them uh-huh. with these amazing green felt platform shoes that are really out of style and they didn't match my dress at all because my dress didn't have any green in it but they were the only cool like high heels I had and so Uh I wore those and I had a pink dress I'd wear with them too and that didn't match either but that outfit I remember walking around the carnival in that outfit thinking I was so amazing I I would bet you were and I think (laughs) that we need more Amanda fashion stories um, maybe made for TV mayhem when we do it. You can do a Amanda fashion tip at the end of every episode. Ding dong. Yeah, you know what my fashions. Tip. I was so <laughs> awkward been... until like I was like 27, and then I stopped being awkward. <laughs> sort of. I I think I think to be honest, um, if I'd been at that carnival, I would have seen you and gone, "Who is that?" 
that would that sounds like the perfect sort of outfit <laughs> where I would go like, what the heck? Whoa. Um, are, are those green so, felt platform shoes from 1978? I, those are delightful. <laughs> sure. Um, yes. Um, uh, so, oh, okay. So, thank you for answering that question because the whole time she's sitting there talking to this brigadier general, and she's got a shoelace tied around her head. And I thought, are they attached awesome. to her shoes? Are they attached to her shoes? Can she like when she sits down? Can she put her head back and her feet go up or something like that? Like she's a she's a marionette <laughs> or something like that? I don't know, but but they were awesome. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, what what else do you have about this one? Let me let me scan. Well. I have a general piece of trivia that just occurred to me that we should have shared maybe. This is Chris Larson's first producing credit, and he is the son of Glenn A. Larson. And he did the entire series. Yeah. So this was a, uh, this was a labor of love. This was a Larson production, like much like the Sedaris family, where yes. he enlisted family members to help him out. And the one, the only one that I know of though is, uh, Chris. But he did this, and then he would go on to do cover-up, which I'm assuming was a Glenn A. Larson production. And then The Fall Guy. I think so. That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. Oh. That's that's delightful. And I, I you, you know what? Can I can I just I, – I got the episode playing right here, and I'm at the point where they're going into the conference, and they're sitting in the van watching the um, uh, the uh, everyone going to conference. And they show a shot of the cameras that are – taking shots of everything and they look a lot like those smart eyes things from the last uh episode oh. and i'm wondering well, should we get rid of those cameras yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> they um, probably used them um i wonder if they used them in the special effects episode too where they built the prison and they had the cgi oh, fire they, they yes. somehow incorporated cameras into that yeah. yes and, and peter brady and his his wife saved the day through their explosions yeah <laughs> so good yeah. Um, let's see. What else do you have in this? I'm gonna. I do like. I do like the um, the scene where we meet Al, where he's like in some sort of room doing setting up a wiretap, and he's uh, and he says like, uh, "Give me a wrench," and then this well manicured female hand hands him a wrench, and the look he gives it like, "Huh?" And he's like, "I thought there were gonna be two big burly undercover Detroit cops around this corner. It's Kirstie Alley. What the hell?" And uh, yes, send her to pick up Al, and it worked. It always works. We haven't seen them, and we haven't seen it not work yet, have we? No, no. They always send her to pick the the ornery ones. They sent her to get Clue mm. Gallagher just because they knew she was a woman, and if she was going, he would want to go with her, which is really <laughs> yes, sleazy. It, it's really yeah. sleazy. But anyway, it happened. Here, he doesn't seem as sleazy. Um, mm. There's no like coming on to her. And actually, it's interesting because when she takes her hand around the corner, he holds it for a second. And, yes. and he's surprised that it's a woman, and then he kind of lets go of it, and it's in a really non-sleazy. He was only uh-huh. sexing that one episode of Good Times, guys. He's a really nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he's got that <laughs> on his mind all the time, but just that one episode of Good Times. I'm just telling you, honestly. I am gonna try. I'm gonna try to. I'm gonna try to find the name of that episode, and I will put it in the um, in the entry on on the Adventure Super Train site, so you can all go. Everybody through can it. watch it. Uh, Everybody can yeah. watch it and enjoy. Now, um, uh, oh, what did you think? I mean, we talked about um, things being pretty bloodthirsty in the previous episode, winnings. So what was your thought? Uh, what happened to the uh, mistress? 
What did you think when that happened? I thought it was horrible. I thought it was absolutely horrible yeah. because she didn't seem that bad to me. And she was obviously kind of – didn't she say she would started a prostitute? And then, like, she yes. became a person because she was living in this deep cover. So, like, the only person she was having sex with was a guy she actually liked and who treated her well. And mm-hmm. she had sort of been – in a way, she was able to escape her past. And she didn't want to go back. And not only that, but she didn't want to do the things that they were now making her do because she cared for this guy. And so mm-hmm. she – I don't know if she's a likable character. I guess she is, but like she's sympathetic to me. And so that she had such an untimely ending, I think is really kind of upsetting in a way. Yeah. And it's, it's almost as casual as the guys getting killed, boom, boom, Bomark and, and Frank at the end of the previous episode. It's almost like you just, and she's gone. It's like, what the hell? It's, it's, um, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's masquerade is sort of, becoming a, a show where characters that I don't know if you really liked Bullmark, he had some charms, but they like people get offhandedly like killed like that. And it's like, uh, yeah, whoa, that's a, that was a little, um, that was a little much. I thought uh, maybe, maybe not a you little know, much, but it, it makes me think like, of, and only because I saw that the actress who plays the girlfriend is, was on a, a couple episodes of Magnum PI. And I'm thinking about how Magnum used to do it. Every so often they would kill somebody that you wouldn't expect to get killed and it would blow your mind. And you were like, I can't believe I just saw that. Or then Magnum would do something that was kind of out of character for him. And and you would be so surprised that he did that, but he was so moved in the moment to do something and he couldn't suppress the anger or whatever happened. And and But the thing is, is that Magnum was a different show, even from the beginning when it was more lighthearted. It had more depth to it so to see it on masquerade it's kind of jarring because it's a show like i said this isn't scarecrow mrs king scarecrow mrs king had a certain sort of sophistication to it so that they could do things like that and and it had more of an emotional weight to it here it just feels kind of out of place yeah yeah it because it, because i mean it it pitched as a love boat meets mission impossible uh makes moments like that sort of huh hmm, yeah and i mean i guess <laughs> that, that never happened to julie I, yeah, I, I, and that that just like the guy, the guy with the white scarf, I guess he's a convincing German assassin. I mean, I, I like that he kills with the white scarf. Um, I don't know. I, I guess he watches that white scarf scarf a lot. I because we yeah. see him like kill kill a guy sort of off screen in the beginning, and um, I don't know. I yeah, it's it's a strange moment, and I, I felt bad for um, Crawford at that moment. Because I thought he really did yeah, love her, and, and she loved him, and and now now she's dead. She's dead, and he's under arrest for treason. So none of this is gonna go well. But ah, uh, well. What are you gonna do? Don't and sell I your did... don't sell your secrets to the KGB. That's the Exa- lesson pre- we've learned here. Precisely. Oh, and I do you like? I, I just noticed this. So the final scene after everything's done, right before uh, Max does his trick with the envelope. They're in a big like hotel room, and um, and so Miss Emily is sitting on at the end of a very large couch, long couch, and Max is kind of like sitting on the armrest right next to her. Al is sitting on a small chair, and Tanya Tucker is sitting on the armrest right next to him. What do you think that means? You think Al and Tanya are going to head back to uh, the U.S. and start a little something? I hope so. I really hope so. And, and do, I'm thinking about it now. Think, <laughs> I'm thinking about it too. Um, do, do you think that 
throughout the episode, Miss Emily and Max are presented as being like, they just keep winding up on the same talk shows together, and he <laughs> no, I don't understand her. the relationship. I, they yes. might as well just get a room. Exactly. He's obsessed with her. He's obsessed and he'll do anything to be near her. And he doesn't know how to just say, I love you, Miss Emily. I love you. And if he could find those words, this would all be different. We'd be telling a different story right now. But yeah, I don't, I don't understand like their relationship and why they are the people that they are at all. Um, but I do like that Max is the voice of the audience because, you know, when they're on the plane and they're getting their mission, he's like, hey, 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 nobody told me that somebody might get shot or that there's KGB because yes. they don't. They're not very clear at all. They're like, come serve your country. And he's like, you know, I said I'd do this, but I'm not into it. And so she says, do you really expect me to feel safe with this guy next to me? And these are legitimate questions, you know. And so, like, yes. so like I really like that part. He's actually like what I think most people would say when they've been told, we're going to put you in the middle of a KGB thing, and um, but you'll be the caterer, so don't worry about it. And yeah, it's like, yeah. no, I'm going to worry about it, because you know I mean? they're assassins. Yeah. Especially because I yes. think they showed the assassin. This guy kills people with his, uh, with his scarf, oh, so you'll mm. be his doorman. You know, and it's just like, ah, oh, no, that's not going to happen in this planet because he kills people with the scarf. <laughs> so, like, it's just funny. But, yeah, I don't I don't fully understand their relationship. And um, mm. I think he's just pursuing her and the restraining order expired and something <laughs> happened there. Yes. I, I kept thinking there was going to be a reveal where this was like this was like an act that they did where she would reveal oh. something and then he tried to debunk it or something like that. But they don't. Um, no, because that's what it, that's what it felt like in the opening to me that she she was one side of this and he was the other side, and but she would always come up with Where's something that? that she would come up with something that was maybe a little bit more than he could come up with kind of thing to make people think oh okay he debunks some of what she said but she said that too or, or something like that but that that doesn't really happen and Max just kind of chomps on his cigar and you know gives gives us the sass i think i think that it, what the way max acts around her reminds me of the way like i used to act like back when i was in like very young and i liked a girl and i would like See? pick on her or 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 just be yeah. goofy or dumb or something like that just just, just to attract her attention now that's not the way you do it, folks. I don't. We're not going to go into a master class on how you attract members of the opposite sex, but you don't do it by annoying them. I mean, I guess some <laughs> some folks some folks might. Be Should interested. we teach a master class? Should we teach a master class, Dan? I don't know if either one of us are qualified to teach a. No offense. Possibly not. I don't know if either not. one of us are, are qualified to teach a master Possibly class on how to attract yes. the opposite sex. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm, never I'm never gonna well, you had those. You had those green platform uh, uh, shoes. Oh, there. yeah. Oh, um, my God. The boys. The boys. <laughs> there, you go. there were no boys. There, there were no boys in that, in that little part of my life. No. And I, I think around that time, I was wearing uh, jams. I don't know if you remember what jams were, but they were like <laughs> these big no, shirts. You wear Hawaiian jammies. shirts and jams. <laughs> oh, jammies, too. Um, no. Uh, but, no. Um, but, but, but yeah, so, so that's kind of the way Max looks to me. Like <laughs> he, He's trying to get her attention by being a jerk and then hoping maybe she'll go, you know what, I like this jerk. It doesn't quite happen in the end. No. But uh, maybe it would have. Maybe it was a backdoor pilot and Miss Emily and Max would have been a Glenn A. Larson show. 
that right that, like eight that would have actually been a really good show to see like a debunker and maybe this has happened and a clairvoyant work together and solve crimes mm-hmm. has that ever happened I mean, I guess the X-Files would, is kind of like a version of... Sort of like that. Yeah. Um, I don't... I mean, I think... Um, gosh, I feel like there has been something like that. Jeez. Uh, I don't know. I was... Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, X-Files or something like uh, a variation, something like Shadow Chasers, where you have the one character who believes in everything, Benedict, and then you have the professor guy who's always trying to debunk it, but not quite the same, yeah. like with the clairvoyant. I feel like I feel like there is something, but I can't think of it right now. Um, well, well Hollywood, if you're listening. Please, Hollywood, take that one up. And if anyone <laughs> is listening and knows what we're talking about, Please comment. Leave a comment or something. Uh, so what yeah. What else do you have about Sleeper? Anything else? I'm, I'm looking. Uh, it's good. I liked it. I don't think I have anything to add to it. Yeah, same here. Yeah, I think I'm, I think, I think I'm good on this one. Yeah, it's, it's, a fun, it's a fun episode. Like I said, I think it's pretty well written. And Bar- Barbara Rush uh, and Cornell Wilde sort of bring, along with Rod Taylor, sort of bring a uh, gravitas to their scenes that um, is really nice. Especially wa- after you watch Dick Van Patten chomping at his cigar and cracking wise <laughs> right. throughout the whole thing. That's right. So I Amanda, can never tell if uh, Dick Van Patten is a good actor or if he's just playing himself. It's kind of like Tom Bosley. Is Tom Bosley yes. a good actor or is he just good at being himself? Like, you know, and that's not yeah. to diminish, again, somebody's no. talent because I love Dick Van Patten, but it just feels like there's so much Van Patten coming out of him whenever I watch him. Yes, yeah, it's tough with Tom Bosley because I just think of him as Mr. C in the end. And I did, I did. it's funny with Mr. C in that I, I think that the moment where I thought, hey, Tom Bosley, he's pretty good, is that moment in the first Christmas episode where they're trying to convince the Fonz in his apartment, Fonz's apartment, to come back to the house with them. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the Fonz, and, and the Fonz is like, and, and Richie's like, I want you to just come over and see our tree. We got, you know, we got this great tree this year. I want you to see it. And the Fonz points at his tree and says, I got a tree. And it's this little tiny thing on the table. And then it cuts to Tom Bosley and, and just the way he delivers the line. Oh, that's a very nice tree. And it always is a bit of a heartbreaker and I think works uh, for me. Well, when Fonz says, oh, I've got a tree, he didn't pull down his pants. <laughs> that's the one. That's the one. Yeah, that that's the when they rejigger that episode for later on. Oh, I've got they a tree. I got a tree. Zip boing. Um. So and there is a great moment too. A, a, a couple episodes before that, with the episode where Richie gets on a quiz show and they want him to cheat, where Mister C, uh, where where Richie says to Mister C, it was Dad, what should I do? And Mister C doesn't give him an answer. And then after all is said and done, he's just so, Mr. C is just so apologetic because he was like, I should have told you not to cheat, but I got caught up in the excitement of it. I got caught up in the thought of getting new golf clubs and you winning that I didn't give you the advice I should have given. So it's sort of, it's, it's, yeah, I like Tom Bosley. I like Dick Van Patten. Um, yeah. I, um, I think, I, uh, I think I wish they'd been in the episode together. That would have been great. Oh, uh, well, no, uh, they should have this a, was a still. Top buddy show. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Could you imagine how great that would have been? And it would have lasted eight episodes. But, but it still would have been great. Amanda, where can we find you online? What's going on? 
Well, you can find me at Made for TV Mayhem on Twitter or at Instagram at Made for TV Mayhem, or you could just go look up Made for TV Mayhem as separate words on Facebook or the Made for TV Mayhem show, which will take you to the podcast that I do with Dan and our friend Nate. Um, and we're trying to get back onto some sort of schedule. So if you haven't been listening for a while, we might have some episodes for you. Uh, but I guess the big news would be, I guess it'd be out now. I think October 22nd is the release day of the Blu-ray of Don't Be Afraid of the Dark which I did the commentary for, for Warner Archive. I'm really excited about that. That's a big deal for me to do such a fine and wonderful and classic and popular TV movie, such as Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Plus, it's a great film, and they did a beautiful job restoring it. Um, also, I think right before Halloween is the release of another commentary I did for Kino Lorber called Nightmare in Badham County, which is also a TV movie. I did that oh, with yeah. Justin Kurzweil of The Stereo Continues, Yay. and I'm really excited about that. And then look for the Made for TV movie Mayhem Show's first commentary together on December 3rd. We did a movie called Amazons, which is coming out through Kino Lorber, uh, which is a 1984, I don't know what you call it, thriller about Amazonian women taking over politics in Washington with Madeline Stowe and Jennifer Warren and yeah, and Jack Scalia, and that's our first time actually on a Blu-ray. So look for that. That'll be coming up, and I think that's it. Excellent. Thank you so much again. And we only have... You. Uh, three episodes left and the interesting oh. thing is um, only two of the episodes aired on the network the final one we're going to watch um, Flashpoint is um, yeah I don't even I don't I don't even know how we got a copy of it did, did this air somewhere else because all the episodes we're watching oh. I have the like have have the um, you know tomorrow night uh, on Three's Company this happens and that happens and one of these episodes and is I think it might be this one where it's like the girls getting some sort of adventure tomorrow night at nine or something and I thought the girls was that the title of a show I I don't think it was quite that but it was just like it's it's so I'm wondering where we got Flashpoint from to is 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 where I, I, don't know. I end off I'm. I'm wondering if this was one of those like cliffhangers or Gemini Man that got shown in Europe and somehow we oh, got or yeah, Armed Forces Network. Like Shadow Chasers, we have the last four episodes because of Armed Forces Network. Um, but yeah. I, you I, know I, what? That w- we should get our Apple oh. phone Yes. and call ABC with our Apple phone. That's like a burner phone. Like They're <laughs> not going to be able to trace it. So it would be like really covert. And whoever picks up the page or whoever, and we'll we will ask them where that thirteenth episode of Masquerade came from. Where on earth did we get this from? Oh, that'll be exciting. Yeah. It's something to look forward to, folks. It's something to look forward to. Bourbon Street Beat. Bourbon Street Beat. Bourbon Street Beat. Starring Richard Long. In New Orleans, Andrew Duggan. This is the blues. With Arlene Howell and Van Williams. Produced by Warner Brothers. Bourbon Street Beat, episode 28, If a Body. Aired April 18, 1960, directed by Leslie H. Martinson, teleplayed by Irving Elman and Charles Hoffman, story by Irving Elman. This episode begins with a um, bunch of intrigue around the docks and a uh, guy with a mustache getting beaten up and all kinds of crazy, crazy stuff happening. Crazy, crazy, crazy stuff happening. And something is... 
I, I won't I won't go too far into it, but um, uh, the the scene it's 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 one of those great openings where you get that opening scene and then it immediately cuts to another scene that's so um, the dichotomy is so whoa where are we now that it's fun. Um, but we go to the music go round club, and the music go round club currently has two uh, main ladies singing. That would be Tammy Pearson singing the beat, and yes, Lusty Weather singing the blues and uh tammy is um i'm sure she's fine in her own way she's kind of annoying and she's kind of got a big head and she gets on lusty's nerves and kind of uh, pushes in on lusty's territory including flirting with cal in the episode and uh, i think we, we go into the music uh, uh when mitchell and i discuss it our thoughts on the music but but basically um uh lusty Ah, okay. Uh, try. I'm trying not to give too much away. I'm. I'm going to hop right to. Lusty is kind of leaving because she doesn't like Tammy encroaching upon her space, and she finds Tammy's body, in her trunk. And Cal learns about it, and eventually Lusty is arrested, and the body kinds of disappears, and it's da 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 da, and Lusty is is let out of. Uh, prison on bail and someone has ransacked her apartment and then someone kind of attacks her later on something's going on and it has something to do with that opening sequence with a guy getting off the boat and to do with tammy and possibly the guy who runs the music go-around club and maybe i've said too much but it's now cal's job to keep lusty from as much harm as he can and try to figure out what the heck is going on i'm gonna give you a blast then Mitchell and I are going to chat about it. Bourbon Street Drinks. If a body meets a body, coming through the rye, going through the rye, what is the body doing? I, we, this, is a, this is an interesting episode. It begins on a boat that may remind you of that episode set in the boat a few episodes ago. But then someone we love returns, and Cal is in charge, large and in charge in this episode. And, um, yeah, I, 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 um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, here's the thing. This is episode 28. We are now officially at the farthest point I think it should be furthest point, but farthest point seems more nautical and more fun. We are further, we are further from this point, ergo we are at the farthest point. Yes, thank you, that person who just spoke, who was that? Is that Rex Reason? Rex, is that you? No, that, uh, who is that, who is that, who just spoke? (laughs) It's Mitchell Hadley. Hey! Is that the author of the Electronic Mirror? I'm afraid I have to plead guilty to that charge, Dan. Yay! Ah, uh, so uh, how, how are you, Mitchell? What's going on there? What are you doing? How are you okay? Do you need anything? Could I send you? Anything? I am. I I am swell. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I am. Good. We we are gonna talk. We are the the reason why we might sound a little loopy is because um is because Mitchell is beat and I am blues. 
And no, no, that's not the reason. <laughs> the, the reason that, that we'll talk about that in a moment. The the reason is that uh, the 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 f- I'm gonna stick with farthest, although I don't think that's grammatically correct. I'm gonna stick with we are the farthest along we've been. Green Hornet. Uh, like Cobra was 22 or 23. Uh, Ellery Queen was the same. Voyagers was 20. Green Hornet was 26, but we had the Batman, which was 27. So we're now at 28, which means we are further along, but farther in our hearts than any other show on eventually Super Train. Certainly, farther. Hey, I added another yeah. vowel. We're farther along than we we will be when we actually discuss Super Train, which we will do someday. I do have them standing by. But um uh, I I guess uh it's so this is a little weird. This is a little weird because this is we're in like um it's it's like, you know, we were all in like the 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 spaceship and then su- and and like every one of us was in the spaceship in some portion of it but now suddenly Mitchell and I are like on those you know those um those like um ropes or cords that lead out from the spaceships you know we're in 70s uh sci-fi we're floating around and i'm a little yes. worried because this is where the junk happens this is where the craziness happens so i'm going to ask you Mitchell if a body meets a body coming through the rye why do you care? No, if a body meets a body, what do you think of this episode? Why do you? Why should you care? What do you think of this episode? Why should Why should anybody? I I love this episode. Uh, this oh. This is a terrific episode, and I will um, give you why this is such a great episode in two words: lusty weather. Um, Nita Talbot is back as our favorite girl, Lusty, and. Uh, Yes, yes. And and she she is just wonderful in this episode. Uh, uh again, um I'll be a little careful about it because we don't want to to um reveal too much, but she is uh a a murder suspect in this and as the and Cal is of course going to clear her name, but we've gotten kind of used to seeing Lusty as this very bold, very um, forceful lady, and she shows some very funny vulnerability in this episode. There's something very very girlish, I think, about the way she plays this role, and um, she, her facial expressions, her um, the comments that she makes are are terrific. Uh, There's a, a scene very early in uh, the episode where she is having a confrontation with another entertainer. They're both working at the same venue and there is some jealousy involved between the two and there's a bit of a cat fight going on. And uh, she gives this other girl, Tammy, she really gives her the business in this scene and it is just a nice piece of acting and there's some some very good lines in this and uh, Nita Talbot, who I love from when she was on Hogan's Heroes and she was in an episode of The Untouchables where she was terrific and and she is uh, just always a pleasure to see and she is she's she steals the episode, I think, without 
without question. I I uh, don't know if you agree with that, but I'm uh, I'm perfectly convinced that she walks away with this. Yeah, I, I I agree. I I think the last time we saw her, I I I thought, are we going to see her again? I hope we see her again. The show made it feel like maybe we would. And then the moment you see her on the posters alongside the other gal, um, where, yes. where uh, Lusty's uh, Lusty is Lusty the blues, or and the other gal is the beat. Is that is or is it jazz? Or I forget what they are now. I just said it a few moments ago, but um, uh, but it, you you see them out in front of a uh, like it's not a marquee, but it's like stands in front of a club. And mm-hmm. you're like, oh my gosh, Lusty's back, and she's so great. I will be honest, the gal who comes out and does the beat song, who is killed, and that's that's not a spoiler. <laughs> that's that's the main no. you know, uh, thing. Um, her song is. Um, I thought it was stupid. I don't know. I, I is is stupid the incorrect word to use there? But it was just like no, I don't out. think so. It, because she comes out and she does this like because when Lusty comes out and does her song, and I thought of Lusty as a burlesque gal, and I figured as a yep. burlesque gal she could also sing. Although I don't remember Betty Page singing. Although that would have made. I love Betty Page so much. If she had sang, I would have uh, sung. I, I would have. I would have loved her even more. Um, but but when when Lusty uh, comes out and sings, it's like, oh yeah, and it's just oh yeah. That that's less, I mean, it's like you you. It's like you already have a character that you love. I think I I, I think I I hope. If 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 you're watching this along with us, I think you 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 love the lusty character. I mean, I'm just thinking of her in the first episode. I'm thinking of her in the um, the episode where Kenny was horribly burned, and and her and Melody are dancing, and it's okay because Kenny's all right. So the horrible burns they weren't third degree or second degree <laughs> burns. They were they were light burns, not life threatening. Yeah, they weren't life threatening burns. But but it was it's so good to see her back, and. And when she comes out and does her song, it's it's so nice. And, and this was the time too with Hawaiian Eye, where um, I forget who the woman was in Hawaiian Eye who sang a song in every episode. That's why Connie Stevens. I, Connie Stevens, yes, yes, she would do like a song in every episode because um, Hawaiian Eye was sort of based in like their. Uh, their detective agency was in like a hotel club or something like that and Connie Stevens would do a song and everything and because Connie Stevens when I think Hawaii I think Connie Stevens so um so so having having Lusty do this was nice the 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 only problem I have is how interested and I maybe he's Goofing, Kel seems to be in the gal, the other gal. Yes, um, in um, um, uh, Tammy. Tammy, yes. Why did I run it? Yeah, Tammy. Um, because, like, you know, Lusty's up there singing, and you know, there are straps falling off of shoulders, and I know it's like, you know, you know, you're listening in 2019, thinking, oh. A woman was seeing, and she had a, a, a dress, and a strap fell off her shoulder, and that made you excited. 
Yeah, you yeah. Yes. Uh, when it happened, to, yeah, exactly. When it, when Lusty's strap falls off her shoulder, it's like, yeah, that's um, I don't know what it is. It's full on shoulder. I mean, we can see the shoulder. There's just a little. Stra- I don't know what that. That's a guy thing. That's or uh, I I don't I don't know what that is. But it's like the mo- like Lusty's. She's singing and the strap falls off her shoulder. And it's like. Oh my God! And but but then she puts the Hello. shoulder back on uh, the strap back on. Yeah, exactly. I say like, I don't know why <laughs> that is. What that is? Because this is 1960, so this isn't even anywhere near where I am sitting in this uncomfortable chair right now. But uh, so it's great having her back, and I think it's a fun, it's a fun mystery ish about what's happening in here. Um, and um, and I, I love her being in it. There, there is one scene where the bad guy goes into her room um, that I don't like. Um, that I know is, which one you you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. That is that I think circa 1960, because when this was made, uh, uh, late 59, early 60, um, would have been played off as like we're okay it's okay because they don't mention it again sitting here as a guy 2019 seeing a scene like that requires some not discussion but uh i i'm not i don't know i don't know quite how to describe it i mean i i guess i can say it i don't think it it spoils it because i'm not going to say who the person is is that what do you think mitchell I think that I think that's fair because I think it's okay. important for you to describe what's going on. So so basically what happens is Lusty is in her hotel room and she's worried about what's going on because they tore her hotel room apart and they're trying to find uh this key and um and so 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 Cal leaves to go investigate and this guy basically gets into her apartment and is demanding he tell her uh, he tell him, she tell him uh, what's going on, where the key, that kind of thing, and he slaps her numerous times. Twice, I think. Yeah, I, I was going to say three times, but at least twice. Yeah, he slaps well, her uh, multiple. That's the key. Yeah, he slaps her more than once, and um, when the episode ends, it's like, hey, we won, but it's. I don't know if this is me being too me in 2019, but watching a, a f- character I love, a female character I love, getting slapped hard. I mean, like, it's like, <laughs> it's like hard sounds. It's it's not like he's not like going, oh, like, I'm, I'm going to. Uh, cuff you under the chin he's slapping her hard and and I, I think this is me needing to adjust um, but this is my podcast and Mitchell as my host on this this is your podcast right now too so you can say if you found this a little disturbing because I did well, I did too, and um, <clears throat> I think that had Cal seen that, or if she, if if 
I, I was unclear at any rate as to whether or not she ever told Cal what had happened. But if Cal had either seen it or if Cal had come in just after it had happened and she was crying and he said, what happened? Or he could tell that she'd gotten, gotten um, uh, slapped around a bit. I think we would have seen a reaction from Cal that would have been completely in line with the thoughts that we're having right now. I yes. think that... Uh, it could easily have been one of those scenes where Cal catches the bad guy, starts wailing on him, and they find that they have to pull him off because he is um he, he's just getting started at that point. So I think yeah. I think that that's that's the one thing that we don't have in this. And I think I think you're right. I think it's perceptive that we're we're talking about this in 1960 that as violent as the shows of that era were and the Warner Brothers shows were always considered violent in relation to other shows but they did so I don't think that they have a reticence about throwing in a scene where Cal beats the crap out of this guy I think it's more this idea that you're getting back to that she might not have even told him about it because back in 1960 we didn't talk about this kind of thing I think I'm with you on there that she she may have not just said anything. And I and, and She's pretty tough. She's pretty tough. Yeah, she she is. But she's so, also so, very vulnerable in this episode, you're right. Yeah, yeah, and and I don't know. Um the thing is I I I am a really big fan of Cal and I really love when Lusty shows up. So that scene mm-hmm. bothered me um, more than it probably should have, because uh, I don't think the makers of it, w- the makers of it, just would have been like, okay, they go in and 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 maybe they would have been thinking like the, like along your lines, like okay, if Cal had heard this or come back, he would have walloped that guy, like like the Hulk beating up. Like Loki in the Avengers, he would have yeah. smashed the hell out of him. Um, I, I think and, he would have. And, and and but and and the thing about the episode is that he he misses it, and so it's an unfortunate thing. But she survives, and I mean at the at the end of the episode, as this guy's no, I don't, I don't think I can go there. Um, I was I was gonna I was gonna jump ahead because I, I have I have a moment where it's like okay maybe maybe this clears it up but 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 yeah it's um that that um I really like this episode um and I think it's a very good because if the episodes are gonna be episodes set outside of Bourbon Street. In the bayou, the swampland, the the old um, crumbling homes, and if there and the other episodes are going to be the ones set in Bourbon Street, I think this is a very good one. Set in Bourbon mm-hmm. Street, it has a good it has a good mystery. Um, the moment when when Lusty opens and and this is this this is not a spoiler when Lusty opens her trunk and finds the gal's body in there. It's oh, like, whoa! Yes. It's a, it it almost becomes like for a bit it almost becomes like an Abbott Costello kind of thing where she's like oh the body's in there and oh where's the body and kind of thing, um, uh, but 
I think it, I think I think that works. Um, I I like that they brought Lucy back for a mystery like this. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, uh, the previous one was sort of this weird one with this couple who I, I'm I'm vaguely remembering it now with this I remember being on the boat and Lusty is there but it's not quite the same thing and this is more of a mystery kind of thing that I, that I like and, yeah and Rex uh, gets sucked into it in a very unusual way too oh yeah please please uh, yeah be- because uh, <laughs> well. I, I can't say much, except that what I will say is that Rex's involvement in this ep- episode is not gratuitous. In other words, they don't just throw him in so that Richard Long gets a few minutes of screen time. There is actually, within the premise of the mystery we're given, a logical reason why Rex gets involved in it. And um, his appearance is is um makes perfect sense once you see how all the mystery plays out plus um when when we have the final showdown lusty goes and gets rex to uh come and save cal and uh it gets everybody together and that was a very smart move on her part to do that so um but i think but i think you'll find that that Rex really does have some uh, skin in the game as far as the investigation is going. Uh, there, there's some wonderfully funny lines in this episode too. Do you remember when the um, so so um, as you say the the other girl Tammy is dead, but the owner of the club doesn't know this yet. All he knows is that she isn't there anymore, and he's calling the police department and tells them, uh, "My singer has disappeared. I want you to send somebody out." And the the um, cop that he's talking to says something about, "Well, most of my officers are baritones," and it's <laughs> it's it's a very funny. Uh, line that he has like oh well you know uh, we'll be happy to come out but I'm afraid your clients aren't going to enjoy us as much as they do <laughs> your other singers and it's uh it, it's uh it's yeah. some nice nice humor that comes in there and um there's also a nice scene just to um come back for a moment to when when Tammy is um up there singing at the beginning and Cal and Kenny are are um, watching this and Kenny by the way <clears throat> for those of you who are keeping score at home um, Melody is still gone Kenny is still interviewing people to uh, not he, Kenny is not interviewing people Kenny is interviewing women to take his uh, to take her place and um, Kenny is now also in the club with Cal watching Tammy and Lusty perform and um, Kenny is 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 commenting on uh tammy says he says something about i like women you have to tame and cal gives him this look that is like it, it it's like boy you don't know what you're talking about here i think at that point you 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 need to look at the opening credits when kenny looks the wrong way at the, uh, yes. you know, as everyone, uh, uh, <laughs> so, so it's like, yeah, Kenny, you look the wrong way. You're, you're still kind of looking the wrong way. Yeah. Yep. And there are, there are a couple of moments like this where, where, um, uh, Cal is, is kind of giving him this look like a son. You and I need to talk a little about women. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, yes. um, a great, yes. 
great little scene there. And uh, that Kenny gets beaten up again. Um, as I say, we still don't know what's going to happen to Melody, where she is. Um, and it's a typical ending in that everybody congregates in the central location. All the parties are brought together for the denouement. And um, it's so it's um, and it and it is a nifty little mystery as well. So this worked um, pretty much on all cylinders for me. I like this a lot. I agree. I, I agree. I think it's. I think it's a super fun. Uh, I think it's a super fun episode. Uh, and and you know, like the. My only drawback, like I said, was Lusty. Um, uh, and and this is uh, Lusty getting slapped was um, something that uh, it, to me was unpleasant. But back in 1960, I'm sure everyone sitting around with their TV dinners would have been like, oh okay, oh okay, oh, okay. I don't yeah, know. I I'm think sorry. Our I, problem. I, I, <laughs> Our yeah, problem that's... as chivalrous men is that we are disappointed that we didn't get to see the criminal get punished specifically for that. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, that's – I guess I could talk for ten minutes about that, but I'm not going to. You've already heard my thoughts. So, uh, Mitch, Mitchell, do you have anything else on, <laughs> on this one? Um. Only, only something that we notice at the very, the very end, and again, this oh. is not going to give away any plot line, but at the very end, Lusty says something along the lines of talking about proposals and marriage and things like that, and in, in, in its way, it mirrors the scene that we saw a few episodes ago where Diane McBain is talking to, uh, to Rex and and makes a similar kind of a mention. And what I think we do learn from this scene is that Cal may be noncommittal, but he by no means feels a need to get up and run away from the table like Rex did. So I think that... Uh, I've got a new case. I've got a new case. Yep. I think that, that Cal seemed like... Um, with a little persuasion there, I don't think that uh, that was something he would run away from at all. No, I, I, I think Maybe so in another too, yeah. universe. <laughs> Second and, uh, season, Bur you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in Su Sunset Strip, uh, alternate verse one. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, Cal, I think, yeah, I think, I think, uh, I think Cal really is, I think that, I think they're a really sweet couple is is what it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's that's the thing with like Rex and his gals are like one off mainly. Yes. And, but I think like yeah. if 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 like if if really truly you're living in the heart of New Orleans and you're you're doing your thing and you got a gal like Lusty and I'm not gonna say whether or not she's gorgeous or sexy but you you got a person like that who is like yeah she's afraid of is she afraid of birds is that from the first one is she uh, yes. i forget <laughs> yes the, the guy from yes. the living goes yeah yeah so she, she might be afraid of birds but she she makes a good living and she's she's fun she's fun um oh yes yeah just uh Maybe, you know, if the federal government is supplying you some diamonds and that 
is probably a spoiler, and I apologize for that, but we... Ugh. Here's the thing. <laughs> here's, the, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um... One of the things Mitchell and I I'm have to do... I'm laughing because I what you're talking about here, so... <laughs> one of the things Mitchell and I have to do... One of the things we have to do is that we have to balance the the fact that I didn't think there'd be continuity in this show. We have to balance that alongside of the... Day, not denouement. Uh, the, the resolution of these shows. So what I may have just said there, which I should probably clarify, but I'm not going to right now. Maybe I will at the end of the episode. I don't. I don't think giving the um, continuing stories of the main characters is a spoiler. Uh, but no. but saying the, the ending. Uh, but, but then it gets tricky because. I mean, oh my God, Mitchell and I only have so many hours in the day to talk to talk about this show, <laughs> and, 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 and so I'm going to wrap it up right now. Uh, Lusty's in this episode. We have eleven, twenty-nine, thirty-three, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, three, eight, eleven episodes left. Ooh. I would, I would bet my life. You know what? I will bet my life. Come and get it. Um, that uh, Lusty will return. I think so, right? I Mitchell, hope so. I, I think so. I, I, I hope really... so, because I would hate to do this segment by myself. <laughs> well, I will. Um, I'll give you. I'll give you the link to SoundCloud so you can upload the episodes, and I'll give you. Um, I don't. I don't know where we will be um, by the end of this. Um, uh, 39, uh, I think Erie, Indiana, and uh, Masquerade are done, so I don't know what we'll be talking about, but uh, thank you for taking over the um, the show, Mitchell, uh, as I pass, as Lusty does not appear again. I think she will. I think she will. I think she will. It feels like, it feels like she will, and I will say that if we say it enough, if we say keep saying, oh. uh, you know, like I think she will, I think she will, I think she will, like, uh, and if if all of you say that out there, of all you boys and girls who are listening to this right now, say it again. Yes. Say it. Say it over and over. Say it. Say it a hundred times a day until episode twenty nine goes up. I don't expect her to be back at episode twenty nine, but um, oh. so I just actually saw uh, Kenny. Um, doing something, getting hit in the back of the head. So uh, having yep. seen Kenny get hit in the back of the head for about the 14th time in 28 episodes, Mitchell, where can we find you online? Um, you can find me at my uh, TV website. It's called It's About TV, and that sounds the way it is. It's about TV.com. And you can find out also information about uh, my book, The Electronic Mirror, which Dan so graciously mentioned uh, earlier in this episode, along with the other books that I have. And um, if you need uh, a time waster and a bunch of rabbit holes that you can go down, uh, stop on by. Thank you, Mitchell. Oh, boy. Okay, so I I've got a real stake in the next eleven or so episodes of this because I might be dead. 
Um, I I hesitate to say it, but um, that's it's out there. That's so hell of a if, cliffhanger if, we're ending on here. Yeah. So if uh, yeah, so lusty, lusty better return. So until next time, this is Mitchell Hadley, the host of Eventually Super Train, which I promise we eventually will get to. We'll see you then.